City Club of Portland is hosting a debate between the candidates for Portland City Council position three in the November 2022 election. More than 100 years ago, City Club hosted its first public forums and debates. While a lot has changed since then, City Club continues to strive to be an independent, nonpartisan organization committed to providing a space for people to gather and participate in lively conversations and research about the critical issues confronting our communities. City Club is committed to supporting and defending an open and inclusive public square, and our dedication to this belief requires transparency and accountability. The public exchanges this week about charter reform only emphasize the need for this work and for fostering our public square. We support open dialogue in which opposing points of view can be heard and discussed to move solutions forward. While City Club generates research and adopts positions as an organization, members always represent a range of views on any given subject. If this mission resonates with you and you are looking for a community to learn and grow with, I invite you to join us as a supporter today. You can start by becoming a City Club member. Members vote on important issues like board elections and research recommendations and lead committees like this one that made the program possible. Click become a member in the menu bar at the top of your screen or visit pdxcityclub.org membership to learn more. You can also support City Club's work by making a donation. City Club is proud to offer all virtual programs at no cost to our members and non-members alike because we believe the ability to participate in our democracy should never be conditioned on economic circumstances. Donate today to help us continue and expand our efforts to increase the accessibility of our programs. Click donate in the menu bar at the top of your screen or visit pdxcityclub.org slash donate. Since 1913, City Club has been sustained through the generous support of our members, individual donors, foundations, nonprofits, partners, and sponsors. We are grateful for the collective support from all of our supporters, and we hope you'll join them. Finally, I want to express appreciation for the work of Maya Harris and Josh Carrillo, the producers of today's debate, City Club's communications manager, Kayla Kennett, and the entire Fall 2022 Debates Committee for working so hard to make this event possible, and for my fellow board members for carrying on this work. I'd also like to thank our partners on today's program, including our community partner, Chevron, and media partners, KGW News, xray.fm, and Open Signal. It is now my pleasure to welcome David Moko, moderator for today's debate. David joined KGW in January 2022 as an evening news anchor. A five-time Emmy award-winning journalist and television news anchor and correspondent, he has more than 15 years experience in international, national, and local storytelling. This is David's second appearance for a City Club debate. David, welcome back. All right, thank you, Leslie, and a warm welcome to all of you watching to the 2022 debate for Portland City Council position three. We are proud to be partnering with the City Club of Portland, and while KGW News has the final word on the questions posed to the candidates today, the City Club has established the guidelines for the overall format for the next 75 to 90 minutes. So let's introduce the candidates right now in alphabetical order. Renee Gonzalez is a businessman and lawyer who currently serves 
as managing partner for both his law firm and a software company. He served on a number of civic organizations, including as a board member for the Portland Children's Museum and for the Library Foundation, as well as president of Oregon's largest youth soccer club known as UPDX. During the pandemic, he also co-founded ED300. That's a group of thousands of families which advocated to bring back in-person learning and to restart sports. And Joanne Hardesty is the current political city, Portland City Commissioner, I should say, who holds position three in that role. She oversees Portland Fire and Rescue, the Portland Bureau of Transportation, and the Office of Community and Civic Life. In 2018, Hardesty became the first black woman ever elected to city council. She is a civil rights leader and former president of the Portland NAACP. She also previously held public office as a state representative for North and Northeast Portland. Hardesty is also a U.S. Navy veteran. So, Commissioner Hardesty, Mr. Gonzalez, welcome to the debate. Thank, Thank you. And I should point out that from this point forward, you have both agreed to be uh, addressed by your first name. So we thank you for that. You're welcome. All right, before we get started, though, let's get to some ground rules. We're going to begin with opening statements. You will each have two minutes. We'll follow that with an open question and answer section on everything from homelessness to public safety to leadership. Candidates, you will have 90 seconds to respond to those questions. The City Club has provided a timekeeper, and candidates, we ask that you observe those limits and to be respectful of one another's time. So, Johan, Renee, the City Club has also allotted each of you two 30-second free speech passes. Now, you can use those at any stage of the Q&A to respond to your opponent or to further make a point. I just ask that you make that clear to me by raising your hand and letting me know that you want to use one of those. All right. Now, following the first section, you'll each have an opportunity to pose a question to each other. We'll have details on that later, so don't worry about that. And then finally, we're going to wrap up with questions we have selected from those submitted by City Club members, followed by then closing statements. Okay, keep in mind though that I could jump into the debate at any time with follow-ups to seek a clarification, response, and so on and so forth. But with that, let us get to opening statements here. The order determined by a random drawing conducting by City Club just before we got underway here. We're gonna go in the same order for opening and closing statements. When we get to questions, we're gonna be alternating who goes first here. All right, so I think, Renee, you won that coin toss and you chose to go first. Your opening statement, please, you have two minutes. Thanks so much, and thanks so much to the City Club for hosting us today. Again, my name is Renee Gonzalez, and I'm here to discuss restoring Portland's promise. I'm a fifth generation Portlander on my maternal side. I'm also a son of a Mexican migrant worker. And I look at the city with both those lenses, a place to restore, that needs restoration, that needs protection, but that also needs to be welcoming to those who are, come here to build, that come here to raise a family. Last but not least, I'm a proud father of three Portland-born children. And I look through all of our challenges with respect to those three children. What will make this city a place that they'll want to come back to, that I'll want them to live in? Uh, I very much am focused on addressing the crisis and livability in our city brought about by out-of-control crime and our inability to address effectively the challenges of the unsanctioned. I look forward to digging into specific solutions on each of these. At a high level, we need a greater police force in the city of Portland, one that is accountable but that is effectively resourced. We need to restore and center uh, victims in our criminal justice system. With respect to the unsheltered, we need to immediately accelerate the build of shelter and adequately address both the humanitarian crisis brought about by out of control addiction and our inability to address mental illness in the region. 
With that, I'd love to turn it over to my opponent, and thanks so much for having me today. All right, thank you, Renee. And Joanne, your opening statement, you have two minutes, please. Thank you very much. And thank you, City Club, for the opportunity to talk directly to voters today about why I'm running for a second term. I am running for a second term to make sure we continue to make progress on some of the biggest issues in this community. Clearly, the explosion of houselessness during COVID has really made our streets feel unsafe. We have a large increase of, in uh, gun violence in our community, um, but I am a, a strategist that actually uses the resources that I have to actually address those issues. That's why we were successful in actually reducing gun violence in Mount Scott neighborhood. I'm gonna, I know that what will make us all feel safe is that everyone have a safe place to lay their head at night. That has been my rallying cry forever, but as we continue to experience enormous increases in rent, as we continue to have people being evicted all over this city, as we continue to see our houseless population explode, it takes an all-hands-on-deck approach, and I am looking forward to working with the next governor, the next county chair, and the housing commissioner to make sure that we have housing across the spectrum. I'm talking about camps that are self-managed all the way up to permanent housing people can afford to live in. I look forward to the questions that we will get into uh, over the next hour. All right, thank you, Joanne. And speaking of questions, let's move into it now. If you could please keep your responses to 90 seconds in this section here. So I want to start by asking you to suspend disbelief for just a moment here. Let's say time travel exists. A group of Portlanders from 2018, diverse ages, races, genders, socioeconomic backgrounds, arrives here today in 2022. They encounter record homicides, record vehicle thefts, streets where more fentanyl pills and powder than ever before are being seized by Portland police. And speaking of law enforcement, a police bureau which says they can't respond to every call because they're understaffed and have to prioritize. So putting the pandemic aside, how would you explain to that group when it comes to public safety and crime, how we got here and who or what bears responsibility? Joanne, you're first here. How did we get here? We got here because what we learned is that our safety net systems that we all thought we had don't exist. And it was exposed. So what we're seeing is you're right. We, all, empl all employers are actually facing the same issue around being able to hire and have enough employees. I have the same issue in fire, the same issue in transportation uh, with maintenance workers. I will say what people will notice is that the city is different. The city feels unsafe. Um, and when you call for help, you should expect that you're going to be able to get help. And the second part of that question here, I'll just draw you out. Who or what bears responsibility? Well, it's a multitude of responsible parties. I, again, I would say the failure of the state to provide adequate mental health care uh, is the number one issue. Number two, we passed a ballot measure to decriminalize drugs, but what we didn't do was actually put the treatment components in place. And so what we're seeing is people really suffering on our streets uh, with addiction and with other issues. And so had we actually done both together, that would have actually made it better. And so I would say the blame is all around, and it's, and it's all around with government, 
and a lack of investment in, in things that serve real working people in this community. All right, Renee, same question. When it comes to public safety and crime, how did we get here and who or what bears responsibility? Well, we spent too much time preaching and pandering and not, not enough time protecting. Uh, we cut police at the height of uh, strife created during the pandemic. Uh, this was a historically bad decision. Uh, we created an environment that makes it so difficult to attract and retain high quality public safety officers, partially from the rhetoric coming out of downtown uh, City Hall, as well as uh, a criminal justice system that centers every venerable goal except victims and except true justice. So a combination of opportunistic politicians, a commitment to ideology over protecting our citizens has created this mess in terms of our criminal justice system, in terms of where we are in, in terms of crime. With respect to the challenges of the homeless and our unsheltered, uh, we have been unable, and particularly the challenges of addiction and mental illness in those populations, we continue to experiment without testing first. Measure 110 was a gigantic experiment statewide. So far, it is a catastrophe. And uh, voters get to own that one, unfortunately. We all collectively voted for that. We didn't ask enough hard questions at the front end. Uh, we were over-promised and under-delivered in terms of the addiction services that were supposed to come online when we approved that. So right. I'd start with that. All right. I'd like to use one of my 30 seconds. Of course, go ahead, Ms. Hardesty. Thank you. Um, I just want to dispel the myth that one police officer lost their job during my time on the Portland City Council. When we cut $15,000 from programs that, that showed that they were not effective, 40 police officers were available for whatever the police chief wanted to assign them to do. Not one officer lost their job. Today there are 100 vacancies in Portland Police Bureau's budget that is currently budgeted, and again, no one lost their job. We did not cut police, we cut ineffective programs. May I use my 30 seconds? Yeah, absolutely, go ahead. So not only we cut 15 million and eliminate crucial specialists in, addre in addressing gun and gang violence, we also created an environment that was inhospitable to police officers. The rhetoric that came out of downtown that was unwelcoming to police officers, those combinations, it wasn't just budget cuts that has led to historic lows in police staffing in the city of Portland. We've driven them away. We've, we've driven them to adjoining jurisdictions that are more welcoming to police officers. We can balance accountability and public safety. We just haven't done it in the last four years. Well, speaking of policing, and we're gonna jump ahead here and then we're gonna come back to gun violence. Uh, but let's start with this uh, because it just, you know, just brought it up here. Let's start with Mr. Gonzalez because I think Joanne, you just went first. So Renee, you're going to take this first. You've been endorsed by the Portland Police Association. Right now, work is underway by a group of 20 appointed by City Council, the Police Accountability Commission, to provide a framework for a new police oversight board. Now, it could be years before a new commission is in place, even though this is something Portland voters approved back in 2020. So the question to you specifically, Renee, do you believe the Portland Police Bureau needs new oversight and reform? And if so, what changes would you prioritize? Yeah, so public oversight, public in uh, police accountability are cornerstones of a free democracy. It is absolutely essential in an urban setting in particular with high density that police are always accountable and responsive to citizen oversight. So uh, we continuously look at ways to address this in the city of Portland. 
um, that work will never end. We'll never reach the end of coming up with the right structure of police oversight uh, uh, or community oversight of police. You know, uh, what was passed in 2020 was promised promise big. Uh, it looks like it's gonna take years to actually implement. Uh, it appears that was rushed to the ballot, unfortunately, uh, given the true uh, execution challenges it's, we're finding in rolling that out. So I don't have a particularly strong feeling about the current, you know, what it was adopted in 2020. Uh, it was responding to the moment, uh, intense interest in police accountability. But I want to be crystal clear. That work never ends. As a free society, we always have to do the hard work of balancing public safety and police accountability. And I hope to, that we can fully implement what was approved in 2020 here soon. Just briefly, is there something that you would point to specifically in terms of reform and accountability that needs to change? You know, I think cultural competency is a huge piece. And so um, the, the, one of the challenges we have in, our, in any urban police department is you largely recruit from suburban areas folks outside of the city that are policing inside uh, urban location. You have to meet people where, they are, where they're at. And when certain segments of the community, you say something, but that's not quite what they hear because of their life experiences. That plays in terms of race, that plays in terms of religion uh, and socioeconomic class. So I think cultural competency has to be a centerpiece of any dialogue about how community interacts with police. Yeah, there's your time there. Um Joanne, I've got a question for you, a different question about policing and policing reform. So you once told Marie Claire, the magazine, back in 2020, that Portland police were lying or even committing arson in order to justify attacking community members, that they provoked crowds who were otherwise peacefully protesting to turn violent. You later apologized for that. At the time, the president of the Portland Police Association called you part of that problem. Now this year, the mayor fired a police officer who leaked false information accusing you in a hit and run. He also sued the bureau. Now City Club members Vicki, Chrissy, and Kevin all touched on this in different ways, but my question to you, Joanne, is how would you describe the current status of your relationship with Portland Police, and do you believe you can still be an effective leader when it comes to police reform? Thank you so much for that question. Yes, I do believe I am a very effective leader when it comes to police reform. I meet regularly with Chief Lavelle, and I meet regularly with Deputy Chief Frome. Um, I also meet regularly with all the first responder bureaus as we roll out a, a Portland Street response. I will say that it was horrifying to be targeted by the police for a false allegation that as transportation commissioner would have actually made me unfit for my job. And so there were three police officers that were disciplined, two 911 operators, and because of the uh, widespread, uh, 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 that information went uh, wild, wild. And that's why I had to sue Portland Police Association um, to hold them accountable for having their president set me up for false prosecution. All right, Joanne, I'm gonna talk a little bit more about crime, public safety, and gun violence. Talk about Dawson Park in the Elliott neighborhood here. It's a place that is cherished by the city's black community, one where some community leaders now say they feel abandoned. A longtime community leader who has lived there for four decades telling Willamette Week, Dawson Park, quote, ultimately represents how the city has neglected the black community, end quote. It is also on the map of clusters put out by the city where Portlanders are most likely to be injured 
by gunfire. Another neighbor said, quote, it is scary you can lose your life and the city will say, oh well, that's just how it is, end quote. So for places like Dawson Park, and it is by no means the only place in Portland experiencing this level of violence, what concrete actions would you take specifically to address gun violence? Joanne, you'll go first here. I will go first, but I will say that the bureaus that are in my portfolio allow me the opportunity to actually talk to communities about what they think would help. Um, but of course, I don't have unlimited resources. Uh, MPBOT, um, and I can't make street changes uh, on every street that people would like. What I have done is actually work collectively with community members, um, and some in inner northeast as well, around Dawson Park, um, to actually uh, help identify what the issues is. The primary issue around Dawson Park is the open air drug market that the police for some reason don't go and actually arrest people who are selling drugs. When a reporter can show up on site and for after an hour watch drug deals go by over and over and over again, if that's the big issue, then that's what we should do. We should have a, the police should be going out there and actually arresting people who are selling drugs in Dawson Park and making Dawson Park unsafe. That's what should happen. How does that work? Let me just draw you out here. How would that work when police say, we've really got limited resources, we have to worry about violent crime, homicides, shootings? How do you, how do you make both of those happen? Well, again, if we say this is a high crime area with high levels of gun violence, I would think that would be a priority for the police bureau to actually target that area. And when you can stand on the corner in daylight and watch drug deals take place as a civilian, why would the police not stop and actually arrest people they see selling drugs? Selling drugs are still illegal in, in, in Oregon. All right, Renee, um, same question to you. What concrete actions would you take specifically to address gun violence? Well, first and foremost, we have to have adequate staffing in the city of Portland Police Bureau. And, you know, we're coming off historic lows in that in terms of the ratio of police officers to uh, population. We're near the bottom nationally uh, on that ratio. So you start, you have to have sufficient police force to address crime in a city. Second, um, you know, our drug epidemic is most certainly is contributing to this. Uh, in, in particular, the gang violence that seems to be coming out of the drug trade. We need to take a hard approach on this, that we need to disrupt that at every level. That takes a commitment that while we are not unwinding Measure 110, those that feed on our, uh, our citizens that are struggling with meth or fentanyl addiction, need to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. And somewhere along the way in Measure 110, in the dialogue around it, it became implicitly okay to sell drugs, that you were also not responsible for the behaviors you engage in when you use hard drugs. We need to reset on that materially because there are folks that are preying on our most vulnerable and it is largely driving our gun violence in the city of Portland right now. So we need to disrupt every part of that trade and that's just gonna take a commitment as a city at all levels of, uh, of, of uh, prosecution and criminal justice. All right, I'm glad you mentioned that and we'll talk about Measure 110 a little bit later, but I wanna talk on this trend about what's been described to me as a general sense of lawlessness in Portland, a Portland where a 26 year old named Ashley McGill can be killed while waiting at a bus stop by drivers who are street racing. A Portland where a 20-year-old named Cameron Taylor can be shot to death while watching a so-called street takeover on Marine Drive. Now, illegal street racing, just one example. Record vehicle thefts, another. A citizen-led Facebook group called PDX Stolen Cars taking the lead on recovering 
those cars. So there is a sense Portland police cannot or will not respond to some of these crimes. I just mentioned it. We heard it again and again. They have to prioritize, given their resources, record homicides, for example, take precedence. So City Club member Stephen called that environment, quote, chaotic at best, delinquent at worst, end quote. So my question, what is your plan to address the general lawlessness that many Portlanders are experiencing and as we just saw, which can also have fatal consequences. Renee, please. So first, we accurately fund the police department. Second, we're uh, looking at a pilot for reestablishing a municipal court in the city of Portland. We last had it 50 years ago. This would, to address, uh, it can, under state law, can only prosecute misdemeanors in the city of Portland. But this is to disrupt the cycle of criminality in certain segments of the population. It is to uh, address the repeat offenders and disrupt that cycle, and um, with particular photo, uh, focus on auto thefts and catalytic converter thefts, which are so disruptive to all Portland citizens, but particularly those that are dependent on a single vehicle to get to work, uh, that are, is so uh, negatively impacted our working class neighborhoods in the city. Uh, so start with that, we've got to have adequate policing. And second, we need to really invest in a criminal justice system. If the county won't do it, then the city has to step in. And we think a municipal court may be a big part of solving that problem. Joanne, what's your plan? My plan is to continue to uh, bring projects to life like Mount Scott, our leader project. Um, what we know is that the violence and a sense of chaos in the community, I feel it every day. I walk, I take public transit. Um, I'm always wondering, is this, should I call the police? Should I, what should I do in a situation when you see people clearly, clearly, clearly in distress? I will tell you, I will continue to actually invest in systems of community safety. That's why we created a community safety division, because what we know is police are a vital part of community safety, but police aren't the only part, right? Fire plays a significant role. They go out and do a lot of education around uh, uh, fire reduction. Uh, they work with our houseless community members on a regular basis to help them camp safely without uh, you know, uh, fear of fires. I, I will say that when I developed uh, Portland Street Response, it was an absolute direct response to a lack of police officers. Because what I know is that when you send a mental health professional to a, a mental health call, you get better outcomes. And we're seeing that, and that's why Portland Street Response is being broadly, uh, 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 it's being um, uh, 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 expanded citywide. I will also, is my time up? <laughs> 10 seconds here. Okay, 10 seconds. It's um, hard to see I right will, there in the back. I, I will also say that, um, we need a system, the PS3s. I voted for the highest police budget in history this last time, and I will tell you, we keep funding police, but we need more than just police. All right, that's your time on that. Right. Um, I'm glad you brought up Portland Street Response because that is my next question for you. So it has been expanded citywide. The goal is to provide 24-7 services at some point later this year. Yes. You continue to advocate for this expansion. Uh, earlier this year, the program manager told KGW that Portland Street Response is overwhelmed by the calls. Often yes. they arrive at a location on average in about 13 minutes maybe, but the individual in crisis is no longer there. So Joanne, my question to you, how big does the program need to be in order to make a significant difference? How long will it take to scale up and how will you measure its success? 
Yes, the good news is the Portland State University professor that worked with us from the very beginning continues to evaluate uh, the success of Portland Street response. The re uh, Robin was absolutely right. Uh, as you know, July 1st, the city of Portland was authorized to expand Portland Street response citywide. But that didn't mean that as of July 1st, we had all the staff, all the equipment, everything we needed to make Portland Street response fully function. So in the process now, of actually putting that infrastructure in place, and we're getting it there. We're now at about 10 hours. I'm sorry, we're, 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 we're close to actually being able to say, and I've been telling people, hmm. please don't say it's available citywide, say we're, we're expanding citywide, mm -hmm. because it does take time to make that happen. And I will say, what the success we've seen so far actually helps Portland Police a lot. And I have actually, that's why I meet with the directors of all the first responder bureaus regularly, because I don't want Portland Street Response to be a model that runs from call to call. It was not created to be a, a first responder that just, you know, jumped from one thing to the other. The whole reason Portland Street Response exists is to take care of people where they are and provide for their most basic needs at that time. And sometimes that takes an hour, sometimes it takes two hours, sometimes it takes 50 days for them to continue to interact with them. And so we have to remember, Portland Street Response was not designed to be a, just run from call to call to call. It was, it was, it was designed to be a humane approach to people suffering on our street. And in terms of measuring its success, mm -hmm. just briefly? Oh yeah, so we continue to have, we're still working, we still have under contract Portland State University, uh, a collaborative, uh, a, a collaborative on, on homeless services that has worked with us from the very beginning. Um, that professor comes every to city council once every six months to give us the update. So we do surveys, we do, uh, we do interviews with people who've been treated by Portland Street Response. Right. So we're getting it from all, and we get it from okay. the community. All the right. community so, tells uh, us. Updates every six months or yes. so. Uh, Mr. Gonzalez, I'm sorry, Renee, stuck on, stuck on formal <laughs> titles here. Right. Uh, do you support the expansion of Portland Street Response, and if so, to what extent? You know, I, I think Portland Re Street Response serves a venerable end, right? The non-police intervention with those suffering from uh, in mental illness, distress, or addiction, uh, interacting with those on our street as much as possible is a commendable goal. And uh, there's a comparable county program that's been working for a number of years as well. Um, I, I, they are part of the equation. Uh, and anytime we can peacefully uh, engage with those on the street to get them into services, that's a positive thing. So uh, I, I appreciate that part of the program. I do, you know, I do think we need to recognize that we're not seeing a decrease in the numbers on our streets since Portland Street Response was adopted. Uh, we're still feeling as a city overwhelmed by the unsanctioned camps uh, throughout its uh, borders. So um, I think it's a part of the equation. I don't know that I have a particularly strong opinion right now of whether it should be further expanded or not, but I am generally committed to non-police intervention as much as possible with those on our street to get them into social services. Now, so that seems like something the two of you agree on in, 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 that, in principle there. Uh, next, next question for you, if you can keep your answer at about 30 seconds here. This is going to go to Renee first and then Joanne as we're alternating here. So last Saturday around 10.30 in the evening, I encountered a man having a mental health crisis. He was screaming in the middle of an intersection and along the sidewalks and slamming a rock the size of a football onto the ground again and again. He could have seriously injured or even killed someone. 
Less than 24 hours earlier, I encountered a woman dancing barefoot in the middle of traffic, posing danger to herself and causing cars to dangerously swerve around her. So my question, who do you believe should be responding to these types of emergencies and what, in your view, is an acceptable response time? Less than 30 seconds, Renee. So first scenario, if someone's engaging in violence uh, that's a threat to property or to person, police have to be the first interaction there. Uh, that's to protect others, that's to protect our city. Uh, second scenario, if someone is engaged in a uh, mental health crisis that does not clearly uh, articulate a threat to others, then we want to look at non-police intervention in that scenario. Okay, Joanne, your thoughts on that? Um, my thoughts would be that Portland Street Response would be the most appropriate first responder in that situation. Either of you have a thought on an acceptable time of response in those scenarios? Well, of course, you would want someone to get there as quickly as possible. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and so uh, the uh, model is getting there in less than four minutes would be the ideal. Um, unfortunately, we don't do that today uh, because of the overwhelming number of calls uh, that come into 911. And I will say 50% of them are for unwanted people. So it's not even an emergency, but that's what's taking up a lot of the 911 caller's time when people are calling because they see someone that looks suspicious or they put up a camp or they're sleeping in a doorway. Um, and we've, we've looked at those calls, and about 50% of them have been uh, for that purpose. Mr. Gonzalez, briefly. I think four minutes seems like a reasonable target, but we're pretty far from that right now. Okay. And in general, you I know, mean, the, especially with Portland Street Response saying 13 minutes on average for the calls they get to when people are there. And we, and I'd like us to at least benchmark against other cities. I mean, we shouldn't be de determining that in the vacuum. We should look at other cities our size and how long does it take to respond to those type of instances. Okay. So. All right. Uh, I want to move on to homelessness and housing now. Uh, we're going to talk about specifically homelessness first, begin with a group of 10 people with mobility disabilities who are suing the city for allegedly violating the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Federal Rehabilitation Act by failing to provide equal access, they say, to the sidewalks. The plaintiffs are asking for an injunction requiring the city to remove tents and debris from all sidewalks and another requiring the city to construct, purchase, or make shelter space available for those displaced. City Club member Tim also sent us a question about this. Uh, I believe Renee was first on the last one. Apologies if I'm getting this mixed up, but let's start with Joanne here. What do you say to Portlanders who can't get around safely or at all because of people living on the sidewalks? That I absolutely agree with them. It is inhumane for us to have so many people living on our streets with no supports and no safe place to be. I absolutely agree with that. And honestly, I think we have enough money in the system. It's just the way we're spending our houseless dollars that I think needs to be radically different. And I think we have to invest not just in the permanent housing, but we have to invest in, we have to, in, in, uh, we have to actually provide camps like Right to Dream 2 when it was downtown. And Old Town, Old Town was safest when Right to Dream 2 was there. It was a camp that was managed by homeless community members. We need many more of those across the city. We need the city, the county, and the, and, and, uh, uh, and the metro to take all the, all the land they have now and actually allow people to safely camp on the land that they have now that they're not using. And I'll talk to you about city land in just a moment okay. as well. Um, but Renee, if you want to respond to that, what do you say to Portlanders who can't get around safely or at all because there are people on the sidewalks? Yeah, I, I mean, you've been 
too patient for too long. You know, the, those, those are common areas for all of us. And for our, dis, for our disabled Portlanders not to be able to traverse a sidewalk, uh, the city is required under the ADA to make that usable for them. For uh, cyclists who can't bike because of extended park or, or, uh, RVs on this all throughout the east side, uh, we have ceded the commons to a small segment of the population. You have a right to be outraged about that. You have a right to demand from city that those be cleaned up. Last but not least, children on their way to war on their way to school. This is an element when we did outreach in, in the primary, we did 200 calls in Spanish. This was like the number one complaint. I want my children to be able to walk to school safely in Spanish. And so we have failed Portland citizens in this regard time and time again, and we need to reset there. All right, and you touched on this briefly, Renee. Um, you talk about relocating people living out of cars and RVs to safe locations. So, What's your plan? How would it work? Yeah, so we start with, we, we do have to put on the table large shelters as an option. And whether that's excess land at Metro or other city land, that has to be part of the equation. We've been taking too long to address that. Um, second, you know, in terms of discretionary dollars, we give, in, depending on the year, anywhere from 40 to $50 million to the Joint Office and Homelessness. That's the city does. And it's more closer to $50 million right now. Um, you know, there has been an ideological bent towards housing first, as interpreted in Oregon, that's at times been more focused on long-term housing. I think we need to allocate our discretionary dollars at the city level towards shelter of any sort. And that includes safe sleeping spaces, that includes low barrier, but as much as high barrier shelter as we can. Last but not least, we have generated an environment in the city of Portland that has been so focused on the, the, the gentlemen out there that are, whose lives are on fire, that we've really failed to address the needs of those people on the margins that are housing unstable, that could fall into homelessness, that could fall into unsheltered. And I would really prioritize that segment, the families, those seniors that are housing uh, unstable, that could fall into homelessness if we don't protect. All right, Ms. Hardesty, uh, Joanne, apologies again. <laughs> In your platform, you talk about expanding safe, stable overnight campaign options for RVs and cars as well. Uh, to my knowledge, the proposed safe park site that's along Northeast Sunderland has yet to open. It would only have space for 60 RVs. It is by referral only. It is just a single location. So my question to you, why not establish larger scale sites where anyone with a vehicle can be referred? Well, that would, you would be creating an enormous, I, I don't, a football field. Well, or or uh, multiple, oh, multiple large-scale sites, but enough that there's enough for everybody out there who, where there's a need. Yes, and uh, Commissioner Dan Ryan is the one that's been working on safe villages for the last two years. My role in the one at Sunderland Yard was to negotiate with the port uh, so that uh, we would move uh, PBOT's uh, equipment onto Port's property um, because, of course, with federal land, they have restrictions on what you can do. So that's been my role. I was the first one that made a site available when Commissioner Ryan said he was looking for places for his safe villages. So that's what I did. I do agree with you. I think we need many more of those. And I actually think we need to actually go around and collect a lot of abandoned cars that are on, in every neighborhood in the city of Portland. 
All right. Any any other safe park sites in the works that we should know about at this point? Not at, again. Uh, uh, not that I know of. With I, I've been waiting for Commissioner Ryan to complete what his vision has been. I've been working with my colleagues at the county um, and at Metro to actually talk about other other opportunities. So I have nothing I can announce today, but I can tell you those conversations continue. All right. Um, and just in that same vein here, this question, uh, Joanne, you'll go first because it is a new question. So a variation of this came in from City Club members, Susan, Corinne, and David. Again, members, thank you for your questions. We appreciate that. Whether it is RVs or people camping in tents on the sidewalk or maybe in city parks, what is your approach to those who are offered a safe place to move to and for whatever reason refuse to go? What then? Joanne, please. So what I have learned as uh, the mayor has continued to do sweeps is and when we say that uh, people got uh, 20 people accepted shelter but the other side of that story is it's for that night so if you've taken people's worldly possessions and you've given them a bed for a night the next morning they're still houseless and as we've seen all over the city all we're doing is pushing people into neighborhoods rather than giving them a safe clean place that they can stay uh, and, and prosper. Just to draw you out here, what if it's not for the night? What if it is a permanent or semi-permanent arrangement and they still refuse to go? What then? Well, there are many reasons people refuse to go to shelters. As someone who's been on the Board of Human Solutions for 14 years, we provide housing for very low-income families. I can tell you there are many reasons. Sometimes you can't take your pet. If you have a pet, that's your loved one, right? Some reason, sometimes if you're a mother, um, if you have a son over a certain age, you cannot bring that son into the shelter with the mom, right? So we can't just say if somebody says they don't, they don't want it. We have to understand why. Is there a barrier that we need to be moved so that we can help them get to a safe, warm, clean place? All right, and that barrier could include pets, it could include? Could include pets, it could include having a, 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 a child of a different gender over a certain age um, that they can't bring with them into a shelter. Um, so there are many reasons. I wouldn't just assume that because somebody said no, that it wasn't that they don't want a warm, clean place to be, but we should spend more time. If they said no, why is that? What is the barrier that we can help them uh, do away with? Renee, your thoughts here? Well, we need to treat it as a continuum. There's not a single segment or unsheltered population. We have a diversity of individuals in that environment. Um, the example of a single mom with children that's often used in this discussion, absolutely we should be looking to find a ways to meet them where they're at. The good news is for the most part, the city and the county does a good job of offering shelter to that segment of the population. The opposite extreme, we have a segment of the population that engages in horrific criminal activities in our unsheltered camps. It, it, they prey on our compassion at times. They need to face the criminal justice system if they don't move. And in between are the hard ones, the uh, social resistant or uh, service resistant that are suffering from some form of mental illness or addiction. I think as a society, we have to continue to balance uh, the expectation that they have to meet us somewhere along the line as a society. They have to take a step forward uh, and we'll work to meet them somewhere in between. So bottom line is a continuum. It's not one size fits all, but if you're engaging in bad criminal activity in, a, in an unsanctioned camp, you move and you're gonna face the criminal justice system if you don't. Okay, so just to draw you out, uh, just in case I misunderstood here, you would make camping on city streets a crime under certain circumstances? Well, let's be crystal clear. It has been illegal in the city of Portland to sleep in an unsanctioned camp since 1981. That is existing law under city, uh, under Portland city law. 
We are subject to Ninth Circuit restrictions and Oregon state law restrictions on our ability to enforce that existing ordinance on our books. So that's not new law, that's existing law. The challenge in any time you're looking at enforcement is when do you fully enforce and when you don't, right? And that's where the concept of a continuum is. Uh, we, we are seeing people prey on our unsanctioned camps. Those we go after very directly. We fully enforce the ban to the extent we can. For families, for others that are struggling, we try to meet them halfway. And your time's up there. Um, I guess the question too, for me, as well as I imagine members watching is, Boise, the ruling you referenced, um, applicable when there is not a place to go. But mm -hmm. if there is a place to go, right. again, this is for both of you, maybe briefly. Again, a lot of Portlanders are wondering, what's then? What is your approach? Renee, briefly. You've got to go to shelter or you're going to face the criminal justice system. Okay. And, and at the same time, we look to evaluate the legitimate concerns that folks have about those shelters and we continue to improve the offerings. Okay, and Joanne, just to draw you out on this point again. I will say that we need to make sure that we have shelter across the spectrum, housing that people need. I'd, people who don't want shelter, Honestly, 80% of the people that I talk to who are houseless would love to have a safe, warm place to sleep. The other 20%, because of other issues, might need to be in alcohol or drug treatment. Certainly, fentanyl is playing a huge role in how people are experiencing uh, uh, that issue on the street, right? So in that case, what we need is actually drug treatment programs to put people in who are suffering from drug addiction. And let me jump in here, because that is my next question. Right. So we'll reset the clock to All 90 right. for you here. Joanne, uh, what role do you believe the city should play, if any, in providing access to mental health supports and substance abuse treatment? And what is your vision to make that happen? So, you know, we have uh, three governments. We have the state government, the county government, and the city. The city is actually responsible for the infrastructure, right? The city actually created the joint office because there was this desperate need, right? But all the money for mental health treatment and, and alcohol and drug treatment all comes into the state and it goes to the county. What we need is a better relationship with the county to make sure that when those dollars come in, that they are investing them for the people who need it most. Renee? Yeah, so I, I think in general, I agree with Joanne's description. You know, it's not really the city's primary responsibility to deliver either addiction or mental illness services. That's unfortunate when those systems are breaking down, the city bears the brunt of those failures. Um, our role can be to disrupt the hard drug trade um, from a criminal justice perspective, to cut off access to those hard drugs in the city of Portland. That is a city responsibility. Second, um, there is a gap in our current service model when you're uh, dealing with folks with very high toxicity of either meth and fentanyl in their body. There's no good place to take them in the city of Portland right now, at least for that immediate um, uh, emergency intervention. There's a project called Beacon that the county and city are working on together to help address that issue. So I think for that emergency intervention, the city will continue to have a substantial role, but true drug treatment or addiction treatment and mental illness, we just have to be very loud advocates that are and, and, part, and good partners with our other government entities in how we address that. 
All right, before we get to a question to each other, I have one more question in this section for each of you. We're gonna talk about leadership and professional and personal responsibility. Renee, this question is for you. Pending your appeal, you're facing $77,140 in fines and penalties for Portland's small donors elections program for paying $250 a month, elections officials say, for campaign office space they say has a fair market value of $6,900 a month. A spokesperson for your campaign told KGW you disagree with that given the quote, dismal state of downtown and quote, landlords are desperate for any kind of compensation, end quote. Elections officials say your campaign's actions go against the whole point of the small donor program. My question, do you believe the same rules that apply to everybody, including all campaigns, should also apply to you? Absolutely. You know, I, I'm an East Sider. I've been there in my entire, uh, for the last 20 years. And as we emerged in this campaign, and it looked like we were gonna, had a good chance to get to the runoff, it was very, very important that we got downtown. Downtown is facing some very unique challenges in our collective uh, uh, difficulties with crime and homelessness. Uh, landlords can't fill first floor vacancies right now on, on the commercial side. So the laws, the rules absolutely apply to me. We have a disagreement in interpreting the regs uh, with the city right now. That's the extent of it. It's a technical disagreement. It is not a philosophical one. So from here, does this mean, I guess, what happens next for you? The city rejected, I guess, your, your request for reconsideration. What are you planning next? We will appeal. Uh, on advice of counsel, we will appeal. And if you lose that appeal, what then? We will continue to uh, go through the process of uh, getting an outside review of that. And then if determined we're required to pay, we'll pay. Okay. Ms. Hardesty, question for you. I want to ask you about your personal credit card debt, some 16000 You have previously talked about this. When you didn't show up for a court appearance this spring, you called it a, quote, personal failing. You said you took full responsibility and it would have no impact on your professional duties. So my question is, since then, how have you taken responsibility for what you call your personal failings? What has changed? What has changed is I am paying my debt and of course that debt came from me running for office the first time because as a as a a person who never made a lot of money i funded my campaign on my credit card uh on several credit cards uh, that was the one that was left and i am making payments on that all right thank you for that response you're welcome let's bring you to an opportunity now for each of you to pose a question to each other this is one of my favorite parts of the debate we ask that you phrase it though as a question and keep it to about 20 seconds here all right the candidate responding you'll have about 60 seconds to answer uh, joanne you're going to go first here so please pose your question to renee okay um renee i understand that you started an organization called ed 300 that it appears to be supporting extreme candidates for school boards all over the state. Are you in support of the extreme candidates that your organization is endorsing uh, in this election cycle? Uh, Ed 300 is not endorsing any candidates in this election cycle. We supported in, uh, I believe, May of last year, uh, candidates that were committed to reopening schools and reestablish children's access to sports and the arts. We were bipartisan. We didn't care about party. The number one priority was that they were providing and committed to getting children's access to the educational environment, the sports and the arts they needed. That's your time. All right, Renee, please pose your question to Joanne. 
Joanne, throughout your tenure, you've been very reluctant to mandate the removal of unsanctioned camps until there was sufficient housing and sufficient um, other services available. Do you still feel that way? Do you think, in, and how long should Portlanders wait until we address unsanctioned camping in the city? Well, the federal court has ruled that until we have places to put people, there are no unsanctioned camps. I am, I am horrified that we have people suffering on our streets every day without a warm, safe place to lay their head. And I will continue to advocate for a humane approach to housing for everyone, all across the board. All right, thank you both. So we're gonna move now to questions for the candidates from City Club members. KGW reviewed and selected these from among those submitted. Some may be slightly edited for brevity and clarity or combined questions here from multiple members. Candidates, a reminder here in this section, you're asked to keep your responses to 60 seconds or less. We're doing great though on time. The more succinct your responses though, of course, the more questions we can get to here. So I appreciate your cooperation there. So we're gonna start with downtown Portland. Just recently, the Benson Hotel reportedly lost a major corporate client citing safety issues. Three other hotels are in foreclosure proceedings, big employers, and it is not just limited to downtown, but in the Lloyd District, for example, are moving to the suburbs. We've heard from business after business who say one of the ways to fix this is to find strategies that bring both locals and tourists back. We have seen perhaps one approach on this front recently with the Portland police bringing back a dedicated unit to part of Old Town on weekend nights, along with potentially closing off some streets and a parking lot there with a history of problems. So Josh and Matt both asked, what is your vision to improve the climate in downtown to make it a more attractive and safe place to operate a business? Joanne? I will say that I absolutely agree that Portland will become vibrant again downtown, and it will become vibrant if the city works with our government partners and start buying up a lot of the properties downtown that are just uh, crumbling. We could buy them up, put them into a public land trust, and start making sure that we're building housing and commercial space at 60% of the area median income. Right now, today, musicians, creative people, they cannot afford to live in a city that we love. That kept me here in Portland for over 30 years, the creative class. I'd love to see us do artist space downtown with that cap at 60% of area median income. I'd like to see us do multifamily housing downtown because right today, I have many people that work for me at the city that can no longer afford to live in the city of Portland. And it's only gonna get worse next year when the rent goes up anticipated about 40%. That, that's huge. And that's gonna have a huge impact on more people being houseless in our community. Did you say 40, four, zero? And if I can ask, where did you it, get that yeah, number? I, well, what, what we heard, uh, actually, I'm sorry, I was quoting a, a headline in a paper from a woman who was living in a low income, supposedly restricted unit, and her rent's gonna go up 40%. 14.3% is what rents potentially could go up across the board. Right, so the today, if you have a one bedroom, they rent at 1600, that same one bedroom would be $1,722 a month if rents go up 14% as we think they will. All right, Renee, uh, your vision to improve the climate downtown to make it more attractive. This is a question from, and a safer place, I should say, to operate businesses. This came from Josh and Matt. 
So there's some shorter term and longer term pieces. Uh, first and foremost, we have to stabilize the environment down there, and that's very much driven by it being unwelcoming because of crime and unsheltered camping. And so uh, that is a citywide effort to address those issues, but people will not go downtown if they don't feel safe on the, on the max, on the multi-use pathways getting in there and being down there. So fundamentally, we've got to stabilize as soon as possible. Longer term, there are potentially material shifts in the way people live and work post-pandemic. And uh, looking at the current mix of office and multifamily downtown, I actually think that is a good idea for us to think about over the long haul. Last but not least, we gotta get our arts and sports fully protected downtown. They draw a lot of people down into the city. We need to get those up and operating 100%. All right, on the business front here, we have a follow-up from Erica. She writes, small businesses and beloved places have lost significant income due to large camps, unsanitary conditions, and the crime that surrounds them. Would you support reimbursing them for lost income as well as cutting tax obligations so they can stay afloat. Renee. Well, we have to look at every way we can to stabilize our small business community. I haven't thought, heard of that quite idea uh, per se, so let me think about it a little bit. But looking at what our small businesses are paying in terms of fees to the city, uh, their direct taxes, I, I think really continue to be creative in how we allevi alleviate their burden in the city is, is, is in order given their, their crisis right now. Joanne, your thoughts here? I think we should be finding ways to help small businesses survive and thrive. I, uh, I also had not heard that idea. I have, um, no one has brought that idea to, to the city council yet. Um, but I do think we have to be creative. But when we say small businesses, I want to be really clear that when I say small businesses, I'm talking small businesses of 20 and less employees, which is really the lifeblood of the city of Portland. Um, and so a lot of times we put big businesses in the same clump that we put small businesses in. So when I say small, I'm talking 20 and under number of employees. All right. A quick follow-up for me on the same vein, talking about downtown and, and the economy here. Uh, city workers have not been required to work full-time in person or return to work, I should say. Willamette Week reporting that some have expressed fear. Quote, why is it city employees' responsibility to rejuvenate a dangerous, unsafe downtown? One employee asked. So the question is, do you believe the city should be leading by example by requiring workers to return full time? And if not, why not? Joanne? I believe that the work world has changed radically since COVID. We've learned that we can do things, some things virtually, some things we can do in person. I think the city, just like most major employers, will continue to have a hybrid model. The question is, what's the appropriate number of days for people to actually be in their office? And if every city employee that actually worked in the downtown core was there, you're only talking about 2,000 people, right? That would be downtown. Um, and I will say, we as a city council have not uh, decided on what an appropriate number is. I can tell you my office works two days a week downtown. Um, I ride public transportation and walk all through downtown. And for people who say downtown isn't vibrant right now, uh, that has not been my experience over the last month. Uh, it is, it, you can see the life coming back in the downtown and the smiles and people just out enjoying themselves. And just to, just to draw you out here, is two days appropriate to use your words or do you think it should be three or four? I think that if the work is done and it's being done uh, appropriately, 
that it doesn't, we learn now. I mean, if you'd have told me a year ago I could run City Hall from my couch, I'd have said, no way, mm -hmm. right? But we've learned that we, in fact, did that for two and a half years. And so now we're working a different type of model. I think this model is a model that most major employers are, are using. And, um, and the city's not any different. Okay, so, so two, two to two three orders. days a week, I think, would be perfectly fine. But I also will say, I have many people working for me who have never been able to work from home. Firefighters, maintenance people, they've right. showed up every day since COVID and have never left. All right. Renee, your thoughts? Well, I think it needs to start at the top. So city commissioner needs to be in city hall every day unless they're out and doing constituents inter interactions. And I would make that a requirement as well of my immediate reports. That's the four or five staff members you may hire uh, if we prevail in November. Uh, they, they need to be in the office every day unless they're out doing constituents interactions. I don't think managing the city from the couch has worked uh, for the city of Portland. I think we're seeing that every day. Uh, it's not just the outcomes on our streets, but the inability to collaborate effectively across bureaus, across city commissioners. I think you need to spend some time in the room together. Last but not least, anyone with facing constituents on a regular basis within the body of, the, uh, of, of City Hall workers, we need them in the office the majority of time. And whether you're doing permitting, um, all of this, you know, when you're talking about rank and file, it's subject to negotiation with the workforce. But uh, if you're facing constituents or you're at the top of the heat, you need to be in City Hall regularly. All right, Joanne said two to three. Do you have a number? Um, I think if you're talking constituent services, it's a majority of time. So three, three days north. Uh, okay. If you're talking city commissioner, they need to be there every day or unless they're out in the field dealing with constituents. All right. And just one quick follow up from he, me here. If you could keep it to one word or maybe a sentence if a word is too tight. Uh, Renee, let's start with you. How do you feel walking around downtown Portland? A word or a sentence, please. Still happy to be downtown. So happy, I'm still happy. Okay, Joanne, a word or a sentence. How do you feel walking around downtown Portland? Cautiously optimistic. All right. Uh, we're gonna talk about housing now. This came from Amy. She writes, Portland is- You're listening to X-Ray FM. That's KXRY Portland, 107.1 and 91.1 FM. You're listening to the city council debate from Portland City Club. A lot may cost $100,000. Permits add 40 to 50,000. Removing a fir tree 36 inches in diameter costs another $16,000 in fees. This is from the New York Times. Quote, you've basically regulated me out of anything remotely on the affordable side. End quote. This is from Justin Wood telling the paper he's the owner of Fish Construction NW. So could you please respond to Justin's comment about permitting and regulations and Amy's question, which is how would you encourage more housing production at all levels of affordability? Joanne. All levels of affordability, what does that mean? That is your question. How okay. would you encourage more housing production at all levels of affordability? So I guess that's appropriate for low income earners, middle class families, and so on. So I, let me say that we now are under the third mayor who has reformed our permitting process at the city of Portland. Every mayor has taken that on as the top priority. Commissioner Dan Ryan and Commissioner Maps have been working on reforming permitting for quite some time. I can tell you that's one thing that every Portlander has in common, whether you're a homeowner, whether you're a small business owner, is that the permitting process makes absolutely no sense at the city of Portland. It, and it takes way too long. 
And in fact, I remember one reform we did early on, uh, a developer told me that uh, what usually took two years, when we reformed it, it now took him three years to get through the process. And I honestly have no clue why it's so challenging and difficult to get through that process, but we have two council offices that are focused on fixing that mess now. And how would you describe or rate the job they have been doing? Well, I'm still waiting for the results of their work group to come back and tell us how they have streamlined that process. And let me say, I've had developers ask me, uh, uh, my time's up, never mind. All right, carry, carry on, it's all right, uh, I'll give it uh, to you. Okay, um, I've had developers ask me um, that, uh, you know, if you just like remove like restrictions so that we can just hurry up and build housing. Well, what kind of restrictions? Like fire extinguishers was one, one person's example. Well, we lost uh, four lives on July 4th last year. Uh, because they were in an older building that did not have fire extinguishers, right? And so we can't just reduce regulation. We have to make sure that we're still building quality, safe housing for everyone. All right. And uh, Renee here, same question. It's a two-part. We'll give you an extra 30 seconds on top of that minute here if you need it. Could you pl please respond to Justin's comment that was about permitting and regulations? Amy asked, how would you encourage more housing production at all levels of affordability? I'm going to go in reverse order. So okay. um, when we adopted urban growth boundaries some 40 years ago, there was a commitment that the metro area would add sufficient stock to be to keep up with the population growth of the area. That has not occurred. So first and foremost, the city has to be a very loud advocate to Metro and to our other government parties uh, that we need to have sufficient housing stock in the Metro area to address medium and long-term supply uh, needs. And so if you don't have enough supply, it drives prices up, starting there in terms of um, specifically what the city can be doing um, we need to be very, very creative in looking at the fees we charge, everything from system development charges, uh, as well as your permitting fees. We, uh, but let me be crystal clear, on the medium term, we are not building anywhere near enough housing in the metro area or in the city. That may mean reducing fees that we charge as a city, including system development charges. Other piece, when we're talking about the different levels of uh, housing, uh, we adopted inclusionary zoning some years ago. It was a venerable goal. We were trying to drive affordable housing. But what we're seeing now is a lot of 19-unit projects in the city. That has, again, led to insufficient supply in the city. I think we need to look at the relative mix of carrots and sticks to spurn both single-family and multifamily housing in the city. And right now, we, we came down a little bit too hard on the sticks. It's not leading to the sufficient supply we were hoping for. All right, thank you for that. Let's talk about the once-in-a-decade effort to reform how Portland governs itself. This is happening right now. The plan was put on the ballot by the Charter Commission. We've seen Commissioners Dan Ryan and Mingus Maps both come out against various portions of this proposal. The mayor seems to be leaning that way, too. Now, we know Commissioner Maps is involved with an alternative plan we expect to see in the coming days that could potentially go to voters at the earliest sometime next year. We've got questions here from uh, City Club members Catherine, Vadim, and Bobby. Let's start with Renee here. Will you vote yes on the charter reform proposal, and why or why not? Uh, at this moment in time, I'm a no. Uh, I think it is uh, too complex to implement, potentially too expensive. Um, and a number of provisions are experimental, at least in the, in the United States. They have been adopted overseas. Having said that, uh, I think the city is clamoring for charter reform. 
Um, I would like to compare side by side what uh, Mr. Maps will propose uh, as early as next week, compare the two side by side, and then make a final decision at that point. But right now, I'm a no. All right, Joanne, you said on September 7th you were personally still evaluating the proposal. Ballots are going to be in the mail in less than three weeks, so will you vote yes on the plan, and why or why not? Well, what I want to say is how grateful I am that 20 community members took a year to talk to tens of thousands of Portlanders about how they wanted to be governed. My job as a sitting city commissioner was to fully fund them, to recruit the most diverse group of community members I could, and to leave them alone and give them the independence to do the work that we actually asked them to do. Um, I, am, I, I feel that it's very uh, disrespectful to those 20 community members for any elected leader to have the arrogance to go off and develop their own proposal at the same time that voters are being educated on what will be on the ballot. I don't think elected leaders should be trying to tip the scale one way or the other, which is why my vote on this issue is not, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> have you decided? I have. All right, but you're not going to reveal which way I'm not going to reveal because, again, I respect too much the time that the charter commissioners have spent out talking to people. I'm really excited. We're having a lot of exciting community conversations around charter change, and, and I don't want my, whether I'm a yes or no, to actually weigh at all in how people uh, 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 interact with this ballot measure. So let me ask you this, both of you, Joanne, starting with you. If voters turn down the charter reform proposal, it's a question from Stanley. He asks if you will help to support a sensible option if they turn it down. That's his word, sensible option. To that, I will add, how would you work within the current system as it exists to make it more effective and efficient? So there's like three questions there, but we'll <laughs> yeah. go for it. Right. Well, let me just say that if voters decide that this is not the reform they were looking for, I will work with, uh, I will work with my colleagues and the community, because honestly, it's less about what elected leaders think should or shouldn't happen and more about what the public thinks should or shouldn't happen. So what I would do is actually evaluate like, and talk to voters about, well, what parts did you like? What parts didn't you like, right? And then would actually start a series of community meetings in every neighborhood in the city of Portland to actually hear directly from voters what they liked and what they didn't like. I would not have the arrogance to think that I could sit down and write a proposal and then just send it to the voters. No, I would want the voters to help me frame it in a way that actually would, would be something that they would support. And if that meant it would be November of next year before we're ready, that would be fine. And would you engage with your colleagues, the other commissioners and the mayor, on potentially coming up with that? Absolutely, absolutely. I always work with all my colleagues. All right, Renee, your thoughts? Uh, so I think there are three parts there, right? So yeah, would, if, if it's turned down, would you support a sensible option? And then also, in the meantime, how would you work within the current system to make it more effective and efficient? Yeah, so uh, I think Portlanders are clamoring for change to our form of government. We have a very old model that needs uh, material revision. So absolutely yes to the first question. Second, um, you know, we need to be laser focused on the crisis and livability in the city of Portland right now. So uh, part of being effective is keeping the eye on the ball. And uh, we are facing a historic challenge uh, to our livability here. We need to keep that front and center every single day. And that's crime and homelessness. That's one. 
Two, you know, um, at times there's been a lot of uh, difficult rhetoric out of city hall. Sometimes it seems like city commissioners aren't getting along. We've got to put in the work to get on the same page on confronting those livability challenges. Um, three, I think that the city can't operate in a vacuum. Um, it is, uh, we have to work collaboratively with our other government partners at the county and state. That takes work. You may not always agree on things, but there's got to be explicit outreach. At times there has felt like the city isn't really getting along with some of our other government partners, and we need to put in the time and effort there. Last but not least, you know, under the current form of government, city commissioners are expected to oversee bureaus. It requires real management acumen. So um, that's defining goals clearly and holding people accountable to them and percolating up as much as you can from your the, the team, from the city workers. How do we solve these problems so that are uh, uh, directed? I'm going to cut you off there because that's time there. Yeah. Uh, Joanne, just I, briefly, do you want... Thirty seconds. Absolutely, and I was going to have you respond anyway to that uh, remark about not getting along. How would you characterize how you relate to your other commissioners? Well, thank you. Save my 30 seconds for later. No, I no, it. I marked it off right here. <laughs> uh, let me just say that I have no idea what Renee is talking about. I get along with everybody on the city council. I have strong relationships with our federal delegation, which is why they are supporting me. I have strong relationships with our state uh, 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 elected leaders, and that's why they're supporting me. I have so I, I work well with Metro, so I'm not quite sure what he's talking about. I think what Renee is referring to is that I'm a very direct talker. And some people are uncomfortable with direct talkers. They prefer people to talk in sound bites and mumbo jumbo. Um, but I'm direct. I am clear. Um, and, you know, may not be everybody's cup of tea, but I'm okay with that. All right. But I'm going to catch you up because that was a 30 second free speech pass there. Um, right. Renee, would you like to respond to Joanne sure. about what you sure. were talking about? You know, so two very specific examples how we balance public safety with police accountability is an extremely difficult question. And um, at times, Joanne's interaction with police has seemed deeply personal. It's a personal feud. It, it appears from the outside. I think that has been to the detriment of the city. Second, when Mr. Mapps proposed, uh, aired that he may offer an alternative to charter reform, jo Joanne's attack seemed very personal in, in how she went after him on that. So that's what I'm alluding to. Joanne, would you like to respond? Uh, saying that it was arrogant for an elected leader to replace their opinion with 20 community members who spent a year talking to thousands of Portlanders. I said it. I said it to him. I said it to the media. I, that's, it, it, that's, that was direct. And what about the question about sort of this personal, this relationship, your relationship with law enforcement and Portland Police Bureau, in Mr. Gonzalez's words, has become personal? I have a 30-year relationship on working for police accountability in the city of Portland. My advocacy started long before I got to City Hall, which is why when I got to City Hall, I knew very much about the transformation that was needed in Portland Police Bureau. I have worked with, uh, I have worked with uh, uh, 10 uh, police commissioners. I have I'm sorry, I've worked with 10 uh, police chiefs. I've worked with six police commissioners, and I can tell you, we've had good police chiefs and bad police chiefs, but I go back all the time. 
Just because we have uncomfortable conversations does not mean I'm not back there trying to solve the problem and make sure that policing works the same for all of us. Okay, we started with policing, so we're not going to go back down that track too deeply. Just got a couple more questions for you here, maybe two more to finish up here, so we're almost there. Appreciate, appreciate that. Uh, this is a question about diversity. This is from Daniel. Mm. He says, when Portland politicians talk about issues of diversity, a common frustration of my family and friends of color is that these conversations engage in tokenism that assumes all people of color support the same progressive policies that many white Portlanders prefer. He asks, what will you do to ensure that diverse perspective, perspectives are actually heard especially on issues of security and economic opportunity, and especially if those opinions may disagree with your own. Renee, 60 seconds. Yeah, you know, I hear this a lot from black and brown and Asian business leaders that um, they are often assumed to view the world uh, the same way as our most progressive elements of our white community do, and they often don't. They worry about the same things of, uh, of, of folks of other races doing, like, are, do we have a quality public school system? Is our city safe? Is my, are my spouse and children safe in the city? Can I build a business here? Um, can I raise a family here? So I think one of the fascinating elements of recent years is that I think we've found the challenges that the city is facing right now has actually drawn a segment of us together. It doesn't matter your race. We're just trying to navigate this very difficult time in history. Um, and there's a lot of commonality there. Uh, you know, last but not least, I think we have had at times elements of our uh, political rhetoric that sort of shouts over uh, certain other constituents. It's often, it feels like families and small business owners are the last to be heard on a lot of issues. That's of all races. And so um, I think it's, it's, it's just keeping the door open that maybe who's loud, yelling the loudest doesn't necessarily represent the, the position of a whole ethnic group that may be very diverse. Joanne? I will say I agree that sometimes the city's interpretation of what black, indigenous, and other people of color need or want um, is very superficial. I, uh, be and because um, I think we don't take the time to have those broader conversations. Now, unlike myself, who prior to COVID, I held meetings in every, in, uh, uh, all over the city of Portland because that was a campaign promise I made. Now that we're emerging out of COVID, I plan to do that again. Uh, what, what I love having conversations with people that w I, they don't think I'm gonna agree with them because I find that most of us have a lot more in common than we have different. And regardless of race, gender, or, or anything like that. Um, I have seen at the city where there are only, there's, I could, five groups that are the only ones basically to get money from the city of Portland and because of my leadership during COVID, we actually identified 144 new organizations that now have access to city resources because they're doing great community work, but they would have not actually have been getting money had we not taken the time to actually find out who's on the ground doing the work right now. And that's, I did that, my office led that up. All right, thank you. Uh, I've got two more questions. I just got to wedge one in quickly here because I want to get to Kevin and Doug here. Uh, if you could just maybe a sentence or two maximum just for time here. They're wondering if you voted for Measure 110 and if you would support repealing it. Joanne. I did vote for Measure 110, but what, and I would not vote to repeal it until we fully implement Measure 110. 
the pieces that we're waiting for is for those dollars to flow into local communities so that we can set up treatment all over the state. And to draw you out, then you may, might consider repealing it if that does not work to if your satisfaction? If we don't get the treatment that was promised, I would consider repealing it, yes. Okay, Renee? I believe I voted for it. I would not vote to repeal it right now, but we need to take a hard look at its failed implementation and unintended consequences and reassess very soon whether that was the right path for Oregon. All right, and let's get to a final question. We're flipping order here, so Renee, this will go to you first, followed by Joanne. This is from Matt, who writes, Portland has been through a lot. Many of our resident spirits are hurt and broken. We need city council to help heal and to help create a brighter future. His question, what will you do to ensure the next four years are less contentious less divided, less mean-spirited, and more restorative, more peaceful, more hopeful? Renee? Well, I think there's two dimensions. When you look at city hall leadership, the language you use, how you respond to stressful situations, how you respond to social strife, they matter. You have a, you, your voice is amplified there. So taking a step back as much as you can uh, from emotional charged moments is super important as a, as a city commissioner. Second, you know, w the pandemic did disrupt all aspects of life. It ripped asunder the social fabric in the city. It disrupted our access to the arts, to sports, to spiritual organizations, to economic opportunity. I think that some of the anger that we've seen in recent years in Portland is a direct response of that. So what we can all collectively do is to recommit to relive to lean in on on rebuilding our city and that i think if people have positive outlets i think that's going to address a big part of it joanne i would i could not agree more that the city of portland needs healing and i'm surprised that we haven't taken the time to do that i have been pushing my colleagues at the city that we should be celebrating those city employees that went above and beyond the call of duty when COVID first hit. I mean, I saw creativity that I had not seen before, and I want to applaud that. Um, I think we should be having community healing. And in fact, we've invested some dollars in doing just that this summer. There were several programs around the city that were really about just bringing a community together to heal. Um, after so many years of white supremacist activity in the city, of, of people living in fear because of white supremacist activity uh, and because of the increase in gun violence, um, we do need to figure out how do we collectively heal. I will tell you, what I know is that most of us want the same thing. We want our kids to thrive in school. We want to live in a safe, clean house. And we want to be able to be economically uh, uh, sustained. Uh, we all want that. Um, and I think we did a mistake when well, we opened that's schools. That's your time here. That's your time. We're okay. going to get to closing. I, you know, I appreciate, <laughs> I really do appreciate you both have been excellent about keeping to time so we Thank could you. get to as much as possible. So my thanks, my personal thanks to both of you for You're that. Right. Thank you very much. I know it's hard to see the sign back there. Uh, we're going to move to closing statements now. You're going to each have two minutes. We will go in the same order as opening statements. So that means we begin with Renee. You have two minutes here to close. Please begin. Well, I want to thank again City Club for hosting us today, the moderator and Joanne for this insightful discussion in my opinion. I'm going to re reiterate a couple of pieces and then talk a little bit about the future for Portland. 
we, we truly are in a livability crisis in the city of Portland. In my opinion, we failed to clearly define the challenges that are contributing to our crime and our unsanctioned camping challenges in the city of Portland. We need to clearly address those issues, clearly define it, and be data-driven in it. We also need to take some of the emotion out of it and let conversations be had, let the analysis be done, but don't lead with anger, lead with calm, collected analysis of those problems. More broadly, and as we look to the future, the pandemic has potentially made permanent changes to the way people live and work. That doesn't mean that some aspects of 2019 won't come back, but we may be at a point where we're really talking about a future 20 years. It's not gonna be exactly the same as the last 20 years. That is both a profound risk and an opportunity to a city like Portland that has invested so much in a beautiful center city and an urban core. And what I'd leave you with on that, we need to lean in on some of the beautiful aspects of our city. We, we inherited beautiful parks from our predecessors, a commitment to multi-use uh, pathways, bike paths, public transit. These are great elements of our city. And when we define what the city should be in the future, I don't think we abandon that. We have also had a history of civic engagement. We're a polite city most of the time. These are things that I think we should embrace going forward. Last but not least, we centered families in how we define a city. We wanted to build great public schools. Sometimes we got there, sometimes we didn't. But I, all I want to leave you with, we've got to make the space to define the Portland we want. That doesn't mean we have to abandon all the beautiful things we inherited. Thank and that you. is time there. Thank you, Renee. Uh, Joanne, your closing statement. You have two minutes. Thank you very much. Thank you again, City Club, for the invitation today. What I want you to know is I have done the job you sent me to City Hall to do. I share your concern about housing and houselessness, and I will continue to work with my colleagues to make sure that everybody in the city of Portland has a safe place to be. In addition to that, we know that we must reduce gun violence. We know that we must make sure that our system of community safety has what it needs to be successful. I'm a fighter. You sent me to City Hall to fight for you. I have been successful in fighting for you. That's how Portland Street Response came about. Portland Street Response is the first change in our first responder system in 100 years. The police accountability measure that you will see rolling out next year will be another systems change that will benefit Portlanders for generations to come. It is my greatest honor to serve as your Portland City Commissioner, and I want you to know I am full of hope for our future. I am full of hope that we will work collectively together to make sure that every Portlander is able to come back and thrive after the pandemic. I sell hope, not fear because I know hope is what will bring Portland back in a way that we can all be proud of. My work around making sure that we have multi-modes of transportation, making sure that people can get around this city without being cost burdened, is another thing that I bring. No one in this race has relationships at the federal, state, regional level that I do. 
I please, I encourage you to vote to send me back to continue the job that you sent me to City Hall to do. Thank you. All right, thank you, Joanne. Commissioner Hardesty, thank you, Renee, candidate Gonzalez. We appreciate that. And that's going to bring this 2022 City Club of Portland KGW City Council debate to a close. Our thanks to both of the candidates, to members for their questions, and to the City Club for providing Portlanders a front row seat which means it's now up to all of you watching. Election day is five weeks from next Tuesday. That is Tuesday, November 8th. Remember to cast your ballots ahead of that postmark deadline that evening. If you missed parts of today's debate, we're gonna bring you the highlights both on air and online starting this evening on a special edition of Straight Talk on both KGW and KGW.com. Thanks for joining us. I'm David Molko. On behalf of KGW and the City Club of Portland, have a great afternoon and don't forget to vote.